You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement. The pastor God has put over your life or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. Colossians 3, 1-17 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then also will appear, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs songs, (laughs) with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. This is the word of the Lord. All right, I'm going to pray for the sermon now. Father, thank you so much for your words and that you've given them to us and that you've given people that will teach us from the word you've given us. Make our hearts soft And open our ears to hear the things that you want us to learn about you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, uh, Renaissance Church. It's great to be with you this morning, uh, whether you're here in this living room or whether you're online. um, It's just a, a privilege that we get as people redeemed 
uh, by the blood of Christ, as we've talked about, as we've brought our sins before the Lord and we know uh, he forgives us. It's, it's really a, an immense privilege to gather before this God, to hear from his word and not be obliterated by it, um, but instead to have it be life for us, direction for us, and to give us spiritual strength. And so if, uh, if you're wondering, like, what, what's a preacher think his job is, um, I'm, I'm really grateful for Luke's uh, introduction. Uh, but I see my role uh, this morning uh, similar to, to Moses's. Uh, I was reading in, in Leviticus just this morning. And Leviticus is a whole book. It's, it's the place where uh, Bible reading plans uh, come to die, uh, maybe most frequently. Um, be, but it's just a book that repeats Moses hears from the Lord and he speaks to the people. He hears from the Lord and he speaks to the people. And so my job is not magical here this morning. Um, all we're doing is opening uh, the word that we just heard read. I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. Um, and and the, the onus for what happens here is really upon the Lord to send his spirit to speak to all of us as we listen, myself included, um, as we listen to what Colossians chapter 3 has to say. So uh, that's what we're going to do this morning, Lord willing. Now, in getting ready to open the, the word with you this morning, I was speaking with Pastor Rob, and he told me about uh, your, your new five-year vision that you've been talking about. Um, and to my understanding, it goes something like this, uh, that within five years, you all want every member at Renaissance Church to be able to point to someone who is being discipled by someone that you discipled. That's, that's your, your goal for five years from now. And I can't tell you how much I love that vision. Uh, it's a great goal. It's very New Testament, extremely unoriginal. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. Um, and so go after it with all that you have. Uh, if God allowed every church in our city to experience that goal within five years, we would be seeing another great spiritual awakening. And so uh, just press forward with all that you can. Um, but here's the question I'm sure you all are facing, uh, both organizationally and corporately, as well as individuals. And the question is, well, how's that going to happen? The fact that it's a five-year goal, I, I take to mean that it's not happening now, or it's not happening to the degree that you want it to happen. Um, and if that's not true, your elders are just awful at goal setting, uh, right? A goal is that we want to see something happen that isn't happening now. And so it's a goal that we're going to stretch forward. And so this brings up all kinds of questions. Well, what needs to change? What needs to change in the way uh, our church life operates? What needs to change in my life individually to, to take part in that goal? What has to happen to make that five-year goal of, of discipling people who disciple others a reality here at Renaissance Church in a greater way? Now, this morning, we get a behind-the-scenes look at the Colossian church. This was a church in the Roman city of Colossae. Uh, and they had a similar mindset to what all of you are pursuing together. Here's what we read about this church way back in Colossians chapter 1. If, if you have a Bible open, it's, it's really going to help you to have keep your Bibles open to Colossians. We'll bounce around a little bit. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, we read that the gospel, this is the Apostle Paul writing to these Christians, he says, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And so do you hear what's, what's happening there? Do you hear what Paul's describing? 
the gospel, this, this proclamation that Christ is victorious, that, that news was bearing fruit and increasing over the whole known world. In other words, this charge that Jesus left to make disciples of all nations, it was underway. And the Colossian church that was gathering and formed was a part of that. But Paul says that this gospel not only came to them, it's also bearing fruit and increasing among them. And so that means that, that now they too are discipling others and more people in their city and beyond are following Jesus. They're learning to observe all that he has commanded, which was his charge in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. But for the church uh, in the city of Colossae, this gospel spreading, fruit bearing, disciple making ministry is being threatened. And it's being threatened by false teaching. It's being threatened by uh, regulations, practices being brought into the church that are not part of the gospel message itself. We don't get all the details of, of what this is. But at the end of chapter two, Paul refers to, to this teaching as, quote, human precepts and teachings that have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. And so the Colossian church was being tempted. They were being tempted to pursue something that looked like godliness, but it didn't have the power of godliness. And I think as we look around our city, as we look around our nation, it's quite easy to see that, that by and large, the American church has done the same thing with discipling. We have invented plenty of discipleship programs. We've invented plenty of evangelistic methods that have the appearance of wisdom, but at the end of the day, little spiritual power. And so as all of us think about this five-year vision that you're chasing after, which is, is so wonderful because it really is just obedience to the Great Commission, obedience to Jesus. I want you all to uh, be encouraged to stick with what works. And so I want us to understand God's program for discipling from Colossians 3 so that we don't stray from it, so that we don't get too creative for our own good. So how does Paul guide the Colossian church so that they can continue seeing the gospel increase among them? How does Paul guide them and how might his guidance also help us in our discipling? Now, in the, in the text that we heard read, there are two simple instructions and these are just the two main points that I want to talk about this morning. In the first instruction, Paul says to set your mind on another world. That's verses uh, one through four. And then the rest of the passage uh, I, I summarizes as simply this idea of do spiritual good to one another. Do as much spiritual good to one another as you can. And so I'll, I'll flesh that out and what that might look like. So let's just spend a few minutes on, on each of these directives from the Apostle Paul. So first, set your mind on another world. Look again at the first four verses of chapter 3 with me. He says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I think the first thing we notice about uh, this uh, instruction is that it tells us what to do with our minds. Your mind is the gateway to your heart. And so while we humans, uh, we're not always logical creatures, are we? We, we do things that don't make sense. Uh, yet God has, has created us with a brain uh, to reason out what is good and what is bad, what is true and what is false. And therefore, what fills your mind is very important. Whatever you fill your mind with, it has potential to shape your worldview. It has potential to impact how you think about God, how you think about yourself, how you think about other people, what you prioritize. And so that's why I think, for example, Romans 12, 2 says that we should all be, quote, transformed by what? The renewal of our mind so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, now, do you hear how those two pieces go together? Be transformed in your mind so that you might know what is good, so that you might know what is true, so that you might know what is perfect and acceptable. Mm -hmm. Isn't that remarkable? Your mind is the key to approving what God approves and hating what God hates. And so in verse 1 of our text, Paul says to seek the things that are above. And then in verse 2, he clarifies what that means. How do we seek those things? He says, set your minds on things that are above. And this principle is, is really quite simple. As we look at verses 3 and 4, um, the reason we should set our minds on the things that are above is because that's where we are headed in Christ. The Colossians, their, their life is hidden with Christ in God. That's verse 3. And when Christ appears, Paul says, look, you all will appear with him in glory. That's verse 4. And so Paul's telling them, he's telling us, to set our minds not on, on the world which we presently live, but on the world that we are headed to, on our destination. We are to set our minds on that world, fill our minds with that world. So let's get practical for just a moment. What are the things that are above? That's, that's kind of an unusual phrase. You probably don't, uh, you haven't greeted anyone recently, most likely, and said, hey, are you setting your mind on the things that are above? We, we just don't talk that way, right? So what are we, are we talking about? What's Paul mean? Well, I think the book of Revelation is, is really helpful here. And if, if the book of Revelation is any indication, these things that are above are actually the glory of God itself. We are to contemplate the wonders of God, the majesty of Christ, the victory that he has won. We are to fill our minds with the love he has for his people, the justice that he pours on the unrighteous, the meekness that he has toward all those who repent. We are to consider how he, the almighty God of the universe, took time this morning to care for you, feed you, clothe you. He has provided for all of our needs. We are to marvel at the fact that by mere faith in his atoning work, the Son of God is preparing a perfect place for you. 
There are no wildfires. There are, is no racial injustice. There are no bipartisan politics, no pandemics, no isolation, no aging, no divorce. That land is a place of only perfect love, perfect peace, perfect justice. It is the place where life exists the way it was meant to be lived. And for any, for all who trust in Jesus, he is preparing that place for you and you for that place. And so it says, these things that are above fill our minds more completely. They change the way we view God. They change the way we view ourselves. They change the way we view others. That's what I think these first four verses mean. And the one implication of all of this is that a daily quiet time that consists of 15 minutes of Bible reading, followed by a quick prayer while we scarf down our homemade granola, uh, it, it's not enough, right? Christians are to be people who long for another world. We, we wander this earth, but Christ, through his death on the cross, he has given us another home. This isn't it. And so I think the question facing us is, do you live like a refugee longing for a homeland? Is your mind fixated on getting home? Do you dream? Are you caught daydreaming about finally being free of this fallen, sin-stricken place, of finally having personal and perfect communion with God, your Father? Or are we fairly satisfied here and now? And hey, if heaven's coming, that's just kind of an icing on the cake of a good life. Those are two very different lifestyles. As I reflected upon this principle, what it means to set my mind on things that are above, I've been just prompted, I think, by the Lord to ask a few questions. And, and I hope the same happens with you. Your questions might be different than mine. Some of them might be the same. But let me just share here kind of the, my list so far in case it helps you think through what this means for you. Here are some questions that I've been asking myself. When was the last time I read my Bible, the Word of God, simply for fun, because I had spare time and filling my mind with God's truth is what I wanted to do. Do I tend to pray primarily out of felt earthly needs or out of longing to spend time with my father? Now, both of those are important. Uh, the Lord's prayer uh, models both for us, but what is my primary motivation when I pray? Here's another question that I ask myself. What am I willing to do to set my mind on the things of God? What regular reminders can I put in front of my eyes? What regular rhythms can I undertake in my day that would set my mind upon God and deepen my thirst for him? I think it's those kinds of questions that we should ask so that we don't just get comfortable living here on earth and, and captivated with what the world offers us. No, we are living for another world, our homeland. 
And so this is the first principle of God's discipleship program that we find in our text. In order to stay away from mere self-made religion, in order to press on in gospel growth and disciple-making, we must keep our eyes on the prize. We must set our minds on things above, where Christ is, where we all will one day be. And so that's the first principle that that Paul outlines for the Colossian church to keep pressing on in gospel growth, in making disciples, in seeing more people come and bow the knee to Christ. Here's the second principle. Prioritize doing spiritual good to one another. And so after, after Paul takes time to direct these people to think and put their minds on the things that are above, he then gives them a list of prohibitions, a list of instructions, things to put off, that comes in verses 5 through 11 of our text, followed by a list of, of exhortations or things to put on in verses 12 to 17. Now, there are many sermons uh, that could be given about these two lists. Uh, we could uh, look at each practice or quality in detail, expound upon it, meditate on it. Uh, but I think that, that just high level, Paul is going for something much bigger in these verses than just providing kind of a matrix or a grid of morality. Uh, we have to realize that when biblical authors give us lists like we find in verses 5 through 17, they aren't necessarily targeting individual behaviors and qualities like, hey, here are five specific things I want you to think about, and here are five more specific things that I want you to think about. What they're doing is they're trying to paint with a broad brush what a gospel-shaped life should look like. And so in other words, these lists, they're not definitive. Um, if, if, you, if you manage to put off all the things that he, he talks about and put on all the things that he then uh, exhorts us to, it, you, you haven't arrived. Uh, th- this is, this is a, an arrow in the direction that we should move. And of course, we should seek to put off these specific things in verses 5 to 11. We should seek to put on the things in verses 12 through 17. But, but just high level, more than that, we should aim for the lifestyle that Paul is describing in this passage. So when we look at the text through that lens, something big and obvious jumps out in the Greek that's I don't think is quite so apparent in our English translation. And it all comes down to a three-letter word uh, that is, is you. Um, and you, I think I've heard Pastor Rob talk about this before. This probably isn't a new concept. In English, um, if I'm talking to all of you in this living room or all of you on this live stream, um, I use the same word that I would use if I was talking to Luke individually and specifically. It would be the word you. Um, and, and yet those have massively different meanings, right? Well, the word that's translated you throughout this entire passage, it's not singular, but it's plural. It's, it's like I'm talking to the group of all of you. That's how Paul's writing this. And so let me just give you a flavor of that by, by summarizing or paraphrasing, starting back in chapter 3, verse 1. And, and you'll, you'll get a different flavor. This isn't Paul just talking to you as an individually. He's, he's talking to you as a church. He writes, If then you all have been raised with Christ, set all your minds on things that are above. For you all have died, and all y'all's life is hidden with Christ. When Christ, who is your communal life, appears, you all will appear with him in glory. And that trend just continues like a train running through the rest of this text. 
into verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you all, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. In these you all also once walked, but now you all must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from all your mouths. And so in, in other words, this passage, it's not meant only to inspire uh, holy individuals. It's meant to inspire holy communities. It's meant to inspire Christian living within churches. That's what Paul's getting at. If you look down at verse 11, verse 11 is a key verse in this passage. It's kind of the, the hinge where he moves from the prohibitions, the, the negative things, to the encouragements. And it's, it's just the foundation that sits under this whole section. Verse 11 says, here, meaning in your body, Colossians, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, what Paul's saying is that Christ is your all. And not only is he your all, but he dwells by his spirit in every authentic born-again Christian. And that's true whether it's the church at Colossae or whether it's Renaissance Church or Providence Church where I'm a member and serve. The resulting spiritual oneness that comes from that, from Christ being our all and from him being in all of us, that oneness is the basis for your corporate holiness and life together as a church. That's where it all comes together. He is all and in all. And so what that means is that none of your individual ethnic differences, none of your individual income differences or the differences in your family size or your marital status or your age or where you live or your personality or your dietary differences, you know, whether you're vegan or vegetarian or pescatarian or you eat meat, uh, none of those kinds of differences or any other way that you are different can separate you because Christ has joined you together by dying for you and being raised for you, by putting his spirit inside of you. Verse 10 uh, says that you are all, quote, being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. Verse 12 says that you are all God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And so in, in other words, as a church, as a community, you're all walking the same road, you're all going to the same destination, and you're all going by the same means together. This is more than just the sum of the parts. It's not like you all have individually set out on a journey to that place and will all arrive there kind of in your own time. This is a caravan of people making a spiritual journey from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're all in it together. So this means, I think, this means, Renaissance Church, that you have a specific vested interest in one another. This means that you are responsible for one another's spiritual health. It's, it's all y'all's job to make sure, to the best of your ability, that every single member fulfills Colossians 1.23, that 
that you all continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Mm -hmm. That is not just a job for Pastor Rob. It's not just a job for the elders. It's a job for church members. It's a job for Christians. Mm -hmm. In verse 15 of our text, Paul tells the Colossians that they were, quote, called in one body. Now, if you're familiar with the writings of Paul, you might, that, that might jog your memory to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, where he, he really expands on this one body metaphor. And he essentially says that that means that a, a foot has to care about the health of the hand because they all live and die together. Mm-hmm. And he says that's a picture of the church. It doesn't matter whether you're a hand, a foot, an eyebrow, the neck. You care about the whole body. Now, if we, if we can press this idea just a little further, I'm, I'm not just saying that you have vested interest in the spiritual health of your friends, and I'm not even just saying that you have vested interest in the spiritual health of your small group, uh, because Paul has no such divisions in mind. He's talking about the whole church. You are each responsible for one another from the least to the greatest. And so we might ask, okay, well, what does that responsibility look like? Well, look down at verses 12 through 15 with me. And this is describing the kind of um, responsibility, intentionality, interaction we should have with one another as a church. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So what kind of mutual interest are we talking about? We're talking about compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient forbearance. We're talking about forgiveness as Jesus has forgiven each one of us. We're talking about laboring for love, harmony, peace, and thankfulness with and toward one another. This isn't just the absence of strife. It's not just the absence of jealousy and envy. It's a positive interest. I care about you. I care about where you are with the Lord. I want to see you flourish. And therefore, I'm going to spend time for you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to encourage you. And that should be the definition of the way we relate to one another Mm -hmm. across the whole church. In other words, we are to do to one another as much spiritual good as we can. It's out of this mutual compassion, this loving interest for one another, where we read the command in Colossians 3, verse 16. Now, Colossians 3, 16 uh, has rocked my world recently uh, regarding what it means to be in a church with other Christians. Now, rocked my world. (laughs) So, I pray it rocks your world a little bit now as we talk about it together. Let's look at verse 16 in chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There are two things that I find very shocking about this verse. Here's the first one. It makes it obvious that for 1,400 years, until the invention of the printing press, Christians could not individually read their Bibles at home while sipping a morning latte. It could not happen. Mass-manufactured Bibles did not exist. Do you know how Christians learned the scriptures for 1,400 years? They had to teach one another. They had to admonish one another. They had to sing spiritually rich songs so that they could memorize and delight in gospel truth. That's very different from how I have thought about spiritual growth for the majority of my time being a Christian. But that first way leads to a second way that I think this verse is shocking. As a pastor, I've, I've read a number of books about being a pastor, about finding other elders. And it's fairly common to hear that the qualifications for elders, which you may be familiar with from 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1, that these qualifications are all things that really all Christians are required to do. We're all required to be sober-minded. We're all commanded to be self-controlled and hospitable. We're all commanded not to uh, be a drunkards. However, some people make one exception to that list, and they say that elders are also uh, required to be able to teach. Teaching, say the books, is something elders do. Colossians 3.16 disagrees. It says that all church members, all Christians, must be able to teach one another. That's how the church survived for 1,400 years. Being able to reflect on the Bible and teach someone else the truths that we find in Scripture, that is not a qualification for pastors. That is a target for all believers. And so do you see how, how verse 16 puts us right back at the Great Commission, right back at the call to discipling? Because what does the Great Commission say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you know the next word? teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. The mercy and wisdom of Christ has not saved you, has not, has not overcome your sin so that you can be on a personal pilgrimage to heaven and paradise. He has placed you with community. He has placed you in a caravan headed there together, and it is called the church. And your job while you are on this journey, Christian, is to teach others and be taught by them everything that Jesus has commanded. And so the question is, can you do that? If not, if, if you think, mm, I don't know that I could enter into that kind of situation and exhort one another from the scriptures or teach someone else who's wondering, what does the Bible say on this issue? If you can't do that, are you willing to be taught yourself? Are you willing to go find someone who can disciple you? 
I think so many churches in our day and age get stuck because they relegate teaching ministry, a ministry that's meant for all Christians to pastors instead of to members. That is not God's discipling program. God's discipling program is a community of people who consistently set their minds on coming home to King Jesus together. They want no man or woman left behind, and therefore they speak the truth about Jesus to one another. And when that happens, do you, do you know what the result is? This happens throughout the entire New Testament. As outsiders come into contact with those communities, and as those communities send out some of their best to preach the gospel, outsiders hear the gospel. Outsiders repent. And then those outsiders experience the same loving concern for their souls as the rest of the church community. And so it's through repentance and faith, discipling, that outsiders become insiders and begin to grow as disciples of Jesus. This is God's discipling program. And it can look dozens of different ways. I think sometimes in the West, we, we focus on the form uh, perhaps too much. What is central from texts like Colossians 3 is that we fill our minds with high thoughts of Jesus Christ. And we prioritize doing spiritual good to one another. That's God's discipleship program. I pray that our churches, Renaissance Church, Providence Church, every gospel-believing church in Pittsburgh would experience more of it than we've ever seen before. Would you pray with me now? Well, God, we, uh, we thank you. All of this work that we've been talking about, this mission that we're on together, this journey that we're caravanning on together, 